Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Thank you for your availability. I'm unbelievably humbled to be in dialogue with you today. Thank you so much. We're really honored to be here. To begin, can you kindly tell us about yourselves? What formative events in your lives catalyzed the scholars you are today? Do you want to go first? Do you want me to go first? Uh, you, you go first. Um, I think I'll name I'll name a couple of things. One is that I grew up in a house filled with books. And I always joke with my parents that they made me read the greats of British literature when I was much too young to read them, probably starting when I was 12. So at some point I had to go back and read all of them, but they really fostered in me a love of, of books. And the Talmud is our great book. And so in many ways, I think my parents' love of reading that they transmitted to me really set up my love of thinking about how we read our central document of the Talmud. Um, and I would I would actually add much the same for my own family upbringing. I would also add that, um, so I have a nephew and his middle name is Chaim. And Chaim was a um, rabbi who my father, very religious rabbi, who my father hired for the three of us um, in particular, my sister and I, when conservative synagogues at the time, some were egalitarian and some were not, and our particular synagogue was not egalitarian, and we wanted to read Torah. And so this very religious rabbi, a Holocaust survivor, numbers on his arm, came and really impressed upon us the importance of learning how to read Torah and the importance of Jewish texts in general. Um, and so I think that it just kind of situated me in this position of real love, of, of having somebody who was completely different from me um, coming in and, and valuing more than anything else, um, the fact that I should be able to read just like anyone else in my community, um, read Torah. Um, and I think that experience translated to me, my sister and my brother, um, and just gave us this utter love for, for Jewish texts in general. So. Thank you. Thank you for sharing that. What inspired you to prepare this book? What message do you hope to convey to your readers? Um, I just want to say that before we even venture into that, I want, I mean, Jane and I really want to thank the Mandel Center at Brandeis University and John Levins Levison who were the um, um, guiding forces in a way um, for the workshop that then led to uh, this book. Um, and John Levison himself spent a lot of time with us trying to um, focus our attention on what were the needs um, in Jewish scholarship and Jewish and teaching uh, Jewish texts. So I just wanna sort of a shout out to them. Um, uh, before we we move forward. But I think the inspiration for this comes from the fact that um, Talmud is, was so much on the table in terms of a, a teaching text in so many different types of environments, whether it was adult education, Jewish day schools, 
but also universities far and wide, not to mention, of course, seminaries, of which Jane and I are a part of different seminaries. Um, but because of the differences in the contexts, we realized that there's a lot that needed to be said, a lot of that needed to be shared about the different kinds of pedagogies um, that we use. Um, we needed to learn from one another, and there was nothing written that could, um, that brought us um, to be able to even think together. I mean, this is the first book like this um, out there um, that really focuses on pedagogy. Um, so that was part of it. I don't know if Jane, you want to add something. Thank you. I think I'll add two things to it. One is I, one is that Marjorie and I spend a lot of time talking with each other about Talmud pedagogy and sharing what we're doing in our classes. And as we did that, we also realized there's a wider audience of people out there that we want to think with and that we want to push to think reflectively about their own teaching. And that came from two places. One is both of our commitment to excellence in teaching and in particular excellence in Talmud teaching. But the other was people coming to us and asking us questions about what are we doing in our classrooms and with our teaching. And so we also realized if we had a book, we could actually say, read this book. And why don't you read this chapter, this chapter, this one might help you with the questions that you're asking about teaching so that we would then be able to get out to an even wider audience, some of what we are doing and what we know that others are doing in their classroom as well to really try and build a, a field of reflective practitioners of Talmud teaching in a range of settings. What are the primary themes in this book? What argument or arguments does your book advance or do the essays in this volume advance? Such a great question. Um, great question. So I think I'll jump in with one thing, and then I think Marjorie and I just need to build this off each other. Our anchoring question of the book was um, that we asked each person who was writing the book to focus on was, how do you define what it means to learn to read Talmud? And then how do you try concretely to achieve that and do that in your classroom? So I would say an argument is, is that there are multiple ways to read Talmud and to learn to read Talmud, multiple definitions of what that means, depending on the context in which you're teaching. And it is imperative for teachers of Talmud to be able to define what they mean by learning to read Talmud, why that's the definition for their particular classroom, and then to be very concrete about the strategies that they design in order to implement those and then to also have ways of assessing whether or not their students are actually learning to read Talmud in the way that the teacher is hoping that they will. I, I also want um, to pinpoint the fact that something that came up over and over again as we workshop with the group of scholars that we were workshopping with um, was the idea of there are those that come to Talmud study and it feels very strange to them. And there are people who come to Talmud study and it feels very familiar to them. So for some of us, it was like me when I wrote my chapter, it was about a lot of students coming to JTS, very familiar with ideas of a destruction of a temple and the rabbis coming in to recreate and redefine Judaism in the wake of a destruction of the temple. And then there were those like for um, who were at secular institutions for whom the Talmud was completely strange. 
So how do you take the person who comes at it with such familiarity and then indicate to them that in fact, there's a lot of strangeness here and they need to read for that. And then on the flip side of that is how do you take the people who come into the classroom where this is utterly strange and these may be people who never will study Talmud again, but how do you then make it something that feels familiar to them? And so the conversation kept focusing around those experiences. Um, and so I think that's in all of the chapters. Um, Thank you. What would you like listeners to get out of our dialogue today? Um, I think I think that what I want them to get out of this dialogue is, is that there's no one way to teach Talmud. There's no one way to read it. Um, I think that I would like for them to understand that it changes based on the person who has a certain relationship with that text. So I have a different relationship to that text than you might, Ari. And so that will influence the way in which we conduct our teaching. Um, but there's also those students who come in with different types of experiences. And so that's gonna affect the way they treat the text. And then there's also the fact that the institutions in which we teach will also have an impact on the ways in which um, we approach the teaching and then teaching reading. So reading is going to change depending on the institution in which um, you would find yourself. Um, so someone who is at University of Virginia, like Professor Alexander, who is teaching a Talmud course, is going to effectively you know, read the texts with her students in an entirely different way than Jane and I might in a seminary, um, will in a seminary. Um, our goals will be different and therefore um, there isn't one way. Uh, and all of those pieces need to be taken into consideration when one thinks about how they're gonna conduct a course, a class, um, an adult education session. Yeah, I think what I'd like to add to that as well is that it's crucial for teachers to be what we call metacognitive, to be thinking about what they're doing, um, not just doing it, but to really be the up on the balcony, almost as if they're looking down on what they're doing and analyzing themselves and what they're doing and why they're they are choosing to do what they are doing. And although our book didn't focus on this side of it, um, I think that something else that is important is for teachers to recognize that we may have our goals, we may have our assumptions about what is going on for students, but that we can't truly know whether student, what is in students' head, whether they are learning to read in the ways that we want them to, until we ask them, until we see, have concrete assessments. Um, so to not make assumptions about our students and where they are and how they're thinking about reading without also thinking about how we're assessing their learning. I also wanna just add that I think that um, there's, this book came out 2016. And so there's been a lot of scholarship that has come out since 2016. We've experienced a pandemic. Um, uh, you know, seminaries and, and universities in terms of the way students think have shifted. So there's this constant shift um, that 
we would we don't want to say that our book is the last word or that um there aren't other experiences and issues and and things that will impact um how we think about reading talmud um and so we'd like to see it as part of a conversation that prompts a dynamism um that's unending yeah thank you there's a chapter written by Jane entitled What Others Have to Say, Secondary Readings in Learning to Read Talmud. She writes as follows on page 57. It is commonplace to consider that simply reading more on a particular topic will increase a person's understanding of that topic, yet an additive version, vision that more exposure to information will increase our knowledge is too simplistic. Such a model masks a more complex reality, that learning to read one text in order to better read and better understand another text is in fact a complicated, refined, and cultivated process. That process is exquisitely true of reading the Bavli, the Babylonian Talmud, a complex and multi-tiered work. Indeed, understanding the rich labyrinth of the Bavli means knowing how to read the Bavli's many layers of meaning. The focused integration of academic secondary readings into a Talmud course that also emphasizes the skills for decoding Talmudic text from its original language, combined with beginning to learn the Bavli's extensive medieval commentary tradition, enables students to learn how to access the richness of the Bavli's multiple layers. Secondary readings contribute to this process by helping students to commit and engage with an approach that embraces one, being alert to ambiguity, two, seeing ways in which one sugya connects with another, three, raising multiple possibilities for a diversity of meanings, both on the micro level of a word and on the macro level of the sugya as a whole, finding subtexts that are latent in the sugya, connecting a sugya to a wider world of ideas, and finally bringing one's own concerns and questions to that reading. Would one or both of you like to elaborate on this passage in terms of what it's trying to say and how it connects to themes that you're trying to address in this study? That was a lot. <laughs> I'm sorry. I hope you all follow that. I'm happy to elaborate a little, Marjorie, and then you can, since I wrote okay. it, you can riff off me. How's we that? just hope that the audience is, is us, you know. Anyway, you can turn to the book for sure. Yeah, Go for so I, I will I will summarize briefly. Um, in, in many of my, in most of my Talmud classes, I assign secondary reading. Um, so reading by usually stuff written in the 20th and 21st century, um, articles that accompany the different sugyot or the parak, the chapter of Talmud that we are learning. Um, I tell my students that I want them to think of these authors as commentary on the sugyot and that we have this model of it's only the medievals who are the commentators on the sugyot. But in fact, I want us to think of these contemporary authors as also a form of commentary on the sugyot as well. I do this for a couple reasons. One is because there is phenomenal academic scholarship on the Talmud, but two, and even more for, and this is a point that I'd like to make to the listeners, is I think there's this myth out there 
in certain circles that you should just be able to open a page of the Talmud and say something interesting about it. Or that learning to read the Talmud means in the original means learning how to translate it, learning what the technical words mean that signal, oh, this is a attacking argument or this is a question. But I have this deep commitment that I try and tell my students that actually learning to make meaning of the Talmud is also a muscle that you need to build. It's not just a skill you have automatically. No one can just open the Talmud and have something interesting to say right away. Some people think they can, but I contend that it actually takes more work. So I use these secondary articles as a way to help my students build the muscles of making meaning, which I contend is a complex and complicated process. And to return to the comment that Marjorie made earlier, it's also part of the process for me of helping make the Talmud both familiar and strange at the same time. So that as the students gain interpretive tools, they both see the ways in which it is a little distant and strange from them, but perhaps also cultivates this process of it becoming familiar to them at the same time. Thank you. Um, I think also, Ari, just building on what Jane was saying, I think you were basically arguing when you were explaining to us about your own work that one of the things that draws you to um, to Talmud, I mean, you, you love the arguments, but you're trying to actually bring um, contemporary issues um, and use the texts as kind of this interface um, between what it is these texts have said and what it is we need today in terms of finding meaning or inspiration um, along the way. So I think that like it's a process that you yourself are trying to, to um, you know, to um, achieve as well. Um, so it's not just you know our students who are trying to learn Talmud, but I think that um, you're trying to do it as well. So. And I Thank think it's very much a process, a um, a dialogue process that what I am trying to cultivate in my students, and I think Marjorie's trying to do this very much as well, is to bring my students to a place where they are open to the Talmud speaking to them from its ancient world, and they feel that they can speak back to the Talmud at the same time from their contemporary world. And so that there's a, hopefully the creation of this real dialogue between ancient and contemporary. And I would also just like to add as well that I think that there's, and this isn't quite related to the secondary source article issue, although I think that that is extremely important. I teach the same way um, by opening my students up to secondary source material. But I think there's something about looking at what it is the rabbis are saying and sometimes it being problematic and you're reading it and saying, maybe this is not my ethic but then taking the text and holding it up to today and saying, well, have we done better? Have we gotten better? Have we, you know, have we moved in any direction at all that makes Jewish communal life or life in general better than it, the rabbis basically claim? Um, and I don't think it's that simple that we are just because we live later um, you know, we've cleaned everything up and made everything better, or that we've taken their ethic and inform and allowed it to inform every aspect of our um, communal life today. So I think it's important to hold it up to today and to the kinds of 
communities we live in and to assess um, what is it that they're saying? What is it that we're living? And how do the two interact with one another? Thank you for so much for sharing that. In in one piece that you yourself wrote, Marjor Marjorie, uh, on page 99 in your piece, and no one gave the Torah to the priests, reading the Mishnah's references to the priests in the temple, you reflect as follows. A student sounded shocked when she looked at the board. Did they not know how to communicate with one another? Are you trying to tell me that husbands and fathers did not speak to one another before Passover and that orphans guardians ignored one another regarding a ritual about which the Bible clearly states is punishable with karet, the punishment of being cut off from the people of Israel? I responded, I am not telling you that. The Mishnah has made its business, made it its business to describe some sort of the breakdown in communication when in Indeed, communication happened to be necessary for performing this ritual. What do you make of that? They had no answer. I was not sure I had one either, but I liked where the discussion had led us. I felt that the student was asking questions, indicating that she was not simply translating or reporting on what the Mishnah said. Indeed, she was uncovering issues that were more implicit. This gave me a clue to her ability to read Mishnah better than she had the week prior. I wanted the meaning of the Mishnayot to develop in each student as they questioned the texts. I wanted them to feel, quote-unquote, productively confused, and to recognize that to feel confusion can be a component of reading well, precisely because it generated the kind of questions that helped to unravel ideas Implicit, implicit in a Mishnaic passage. Could one or both of you elaborate on this passage and its relationship to broader themes that you're trying to convey in the book? Um, I think this is something Jane already said, that there is an element of um, students come in, at least for us, they're going to learn the Talmud in the original language. And so there's an element of stage one where they're going to learn how to translate into English. And on some level, um, they come in thinking that there's this right answer. And this is something that's also, you know, they go online now, they can look up English translations online, and they, they sort of look at that and they say, well, this is the right answer. But what we're trying to do is we're trying to get them past the fact that there's this one way of translating the text. There are sometimes ambiguity, sometimes variety, and hoping that in pointing to ambiguity, it generates a second level of questioning, which doesn't necessarily yield the fact that everyone in the room is going to walk out with the same idea. Um, you know, we, we want this to, that's what I call productive questioning. It's, it's productive. It's moving them along in a process in which they're going to be thinking about the text, but not necessarily understanding that there's only one way to see it. Um, so I don't know if, Jane, you want to pick up on that a little more. Um, I, I think I just want to add to it that it's important for us both in the realm of ideas that there's more than one way to unpack the text, but also getting our students to see it in their very process of translating the text of noticing the ambiguity and meanings of words as they're, as they're trying to figure out what does this mean 
and just making things a little less clear than they might think if they went straight to the English translation. And then to return to something else that Marjorie said earlier, for our students who come in with, with certainties, this process can push them to question just a little bit more and to say, wait, is what I know or what I think I know really what's going on here? And that push to uncertainty is really crucial in that this project of learning to read the Bavli. And, and they should develop a sense of confidence as well, that it, it it's that there isn't one way, there isn't one final view or final answer. Um, so, and that's especially important today um, in the ways in which we're seeing our environment where people read something online and want to believe it as it states it, rather than coming to it and saying, wait a minute, between the lines, I see ambiguity here, I see problems here, I don't necessarily see this the way it in fact presents at the first look. And I think I, something that's become increasingly important to me since we did this book actually, is really thinking of my classroom in many ways as a laboratory for the students to engage with one another in this process of ambiguity, certainty, multiplicity of opinions, not just within the Talmud itself, that's kind of stereotypical, but really amongst themselves and to for them to notice the process that they're going through with one another to arrive at say three possible meanings of this text. And that's really, really crucial to me. Thank you so much for sharing that. In the same piece, Marjorie writes as follows on page 103. My students were beginning to think about the different ways in which one chapter of Mishnah referred to the temple. In learning, in, in pressing that learning to read very closely meant continuing to ask questions, I said to them again, how did the rabbis refer to the Passover offering here? This so that these differences would emerge more clearly in class and they could try to uncover what was at issue for the rabbis. A student keenly recognized that in Mishnah Pesachim 10.5, the rabbis choose not to connect the familiar term for the Passover offering Pesach explicitly to the temple cult. Instead, Mishnah Pesachim 10.5 makes a direct link between the offering and the events leading up to the exodus from Egypt. Memory was wedded to a historical narrative. It was important to remember God's salvific powers and, of course, redemption. And so, I said to them, is Mishnah Pesachim 10.5 simply about referencing the Passover sacrifice, the Pesach, or are the rabbis struggling with the definition of memory? Again, I left the question dangling. It was more important to me that I modeled for them the need to keep returning to the question of what was at issue for the rabbis. Would one or both of you like to elaborate on this passage, both on its own terms and in relation to themes in your book? Um. So I, I, I can only say that I was trying to get students to notice um, shifts in um, the rabbinic conception of Pesach um, and not to necessarily conclude um, that because, 
you know, there was once a Pesach offering that that necessarily remained central um, for rabbinic memory. And um, and so I was just trying to push them in, in a direction of trying to consider who the rabbis were, are, and what their values were in terms of creating the Passover Seder, shifting them away from just simply thinking about it as um, once there was a, a sacrificial cult um, and that the rabbis were, you know, just simply replacing the cult. Like it, it's much more complicated. The, the development of um, the ritual of the Seder is much more complicated than simply just a replacement. Um, and so I was trying to get them to see that in the language itself, the rabbis were struggling, um, that they didn't just default to the korban, to the sacrifice, but that, you know, they were themselves trying to um, uh, reflect um, more carefully um, as they moved forward in time um, and were not themselves offering a korban, a sacrifice. Um, the thing I, I'll, I'll build on that a little and say what I think is also core to Marjorie's teaching and also very important in my own teaching is that you'll notice Marjorie could have just said what she said now to the students and fed it to them, but that's not the model of teaching that Marjorie is modeling in her chapter. It's using questions to get the students to notice and the students to notice the seams and the students to ask questions and move themselves there. And I happen to think it's a much more effective mode of teaching because not only will the students, I think, remember it more because they are getting themselves there, but it is also a model which teaches them to ask the questions, which will then enable them to notice shifts in other areas of rabbinic law, rabbinic history, rabbinic narrative as well. So I want to just point that out as Marjorie's pedagogy of moving them there through questions and not just feeding them what she has already noticed. Thank you. Yes, thank you. That's a, a very good a good summary of um, of what we're both trying to do. And um, we neither one of us are lecturers. Neither neither one of us um, are trying to uh, sort of. Um, tell the students what it is we want them to see, but we want them to develop um, for themselves a way to see it. But I just wanna also say that and remind um, you, Ari, that uh, Jane and I have the pleasure, the, um, the absolute um, wonderful ability to teach in the original. And that not all of the people who we engaged in this workshop were teaching texts in the original. It is true that our students love to sit with the original and that they feel a sense of authenticity in looking at a Talmudic daf or a, a, a Talmudic page at the Mishnah itself in the original um, and prefer to sit with the book itself rather than look at it online. And so that's very true. But I also wanna, you know, a shout out to all of the people who were participated in our workshop who don't don't encounter students who know any Hebrew at all um, and um, are using these texts as a way to introduce them to the Talmud um, in a very, very different sort of way. Um, I think that they use the same kind of approach of questioning, but I, I just want to sort of put out there that um, um, I think that what our book does is it recognizes um, that that piece and, and that complication um, of uh, those who are faced with wanting to 
teach Jewish texts, but can't teach them in the original. And the other thing that I want to add to that is one thing I think readers could notice in our book is what someone who is encountering these texts, even in translation for the first time, might notice that someone who has encountered these texts many times might miss. So if you look, for example, at Greg Gardner's chapter, and he's talking about what does it mean to teach the Talmud in translation to students who are getting doctorates in classics, it's really remarkable what they notice and the kinds of questions they have because they're coming at the Talmud from another field. And so I do want to also highlight that there are things that a teacher of Talmud in a who is teaching it not in the original, but in another context, there are very exciting and revealing moments with students in those contexts as well. Thank you for sharing. Why is the study of Talmud intimidating? How can teachers help students who struggle in this regard? You want to take that, Marjorie, or? Um, Okay, I think that it's, I think that the study of Talmud is intimidating because it looks like nothing anyone has ever seen. It's not a, it's not that you can start from the top and read straight through just like you would read a book and be able to then reflect on it. It comes together over many generations. It has many different sources. It's a, it's a dialogue that has put, been put together over hundreds of years. Um, and so it requires a certain type of reading that's just different from anything anyone has ever experienced in regard to any other corpus. And so um, I think that that in and of itself creates intimidation. And I think that also um, there's a sense that if you know how to read Talmud, whatever knowing how to read Talmud means, um, it makes you somehow smarter or um, uh, it, it makes you somehow more authentic, whatever that word means also, um, and so um, that generates a certain amount of intimidation on the part of our students. But at the same time, there's also a certain amount of intimidation on the part of teachers who were trying to teach it. And so part of this workshop was bringing together people who could share their frustrations, their, their difficulties at all levels. Um, and to be able to be in a room as a university professor and talk about teaching one of the most difficult texts to study that there is out there um, was really, in my mind, very, um, um, it was, it, it, I don't know what the word I'm looking for, but it was very inspiring and, and really, I think, brought down the levels of intimidation um, on some, anyway, I don't know, you'll probably have to cut that part out, but okay, Thank <laughs> Jane. You. The other, the, what I want to add to it is that I think it's really crucial that teachers think of the Talmud as a type of learning for which you can develop a scaffold like any other type of learning that you want your students to do. And this is why defining what you mean by reading is so crucial, because that enables you to figure out how do I need to scaffold this learning for my students? So to build a structure for them where they're going to trust me that they can do this and that I can then think through what are the steps that I need to build and that I need to put in place so that the student can get from A to Z. And that's much harder to do if you haven't defined what you want them to do. And then it was wonderful to have us all in the room to share 
those different ideas of what we want to do and come up with the scaffolds for how, in fact, we try and build that for our students. Thank you. How can Talmud study intersect with theories and strategies of reading elsewhere in the humanities? Um, I I love that question. And I have to say for full confession, I'm really just starting to dive into it more deeply right now. I'm very interested in ancient modes of reading and what we might have to learn from ancient forms of pedagogy. But for this particular project, um, what Marjorie and I discovered was that there was actually basically nothing written on adults learning to read primary texts, in particular in the primary text original language. It just that work hasn't been done. So we actually turned to literature on how first graders learn to read mm-hmm. and used some of that literature to help us think through what are the what does it mean to learn to read? What are the different things that are involved in it? For example, text to text, text to self, text to world connections, and then kind of the elements of really learning to make sense of a text from the letter level to the word level, to the sentence, to the paragraph, and and out even bigger than that. So for this particular book, we actually turn to early childhood and how children learn to read. And and for the humanities writ large, I think that there is a sense that one needs to learn how to read critically, and that Talmud is a training ground for teaching people how to read critically, how to be asking certain types of questions and never to take anything at face value. The rabbis didn't take any word at face value. They were always looking deeper and trying to use other words to explain the first word. They were always trying to um, dig deeper. And so on some level, I think that that aspect of reading um, is something that can affect uh, humanities for sure. I also think that um, it is important that we all impress upon our students um, and understand that personhood and who they are is always defined and always um, uh, defined by context, the context and who they are, their own experiences. But they all come in addition to that context. That context always meets imagination. And I think in the in the rabbis, that's what we see. We see the rabbis with a particular context, a particular sense of who they are, a commitment to Torah, but also this utter sense of imagination and creativity. And so the two are constantly in, in dialogue with one another. And, and so I feel like that is something that um, over and over again comes through in the teaching of Tom. How can the Talmud be related to as a summons? How can Talmud study help students to become their best selves? I think that, and this is, of course, quoting or referring to Sarah Lev, who I think wrote a, one of the best chapters in, um, in the book. Um, and she talks about the fact that the Talmud summons us in ways that teach us empathy, um, that we can't just read something and because we don't necessarily agree with it or find it to be ethically problematic, we dismiss it. But rather we need to get to a point in which we, it summons us to be in dialogue with it, to add our voice to it, and to at least be empathic enough to try to understand where it emerges from. 
even if we ourselves are not necessarily going to take it at face value. Um, I don't know if you want to add to the, the summons idea. It's such an, a beautiful concept of someone being summoned to more discussion, the, the feeling that these rabbis were not ending a conversation, that they were in the stage of beginning a conversation. They were prompting a conversation and they wanted voices to come in to add to that conversation. Um, but I think what she was also trying to do in addition to that was not just saying that the Talmud is a summons, but that it is incumbent upon us to create a method of reading, which enables the Talmud to act as a act summons. As a summons. Yes. Yeah, it's not that the Talmud is going to summon us, but she said, I want to propose a way of reading it that is going to make the Talmud act as a summons to be our better selves. And what I love about what Sarah was trying to do is they weren't saying that the Talmud is itself an ethical document. And the Talmud itself is not teaching us necessarily the ideal way to live but that it can help us become better. Um, and it can do that even when we read some of its more troubling passages, because we can develop a reading methodology that exposes multiplicity of ways of reading that tries to get inside the characters in these stories or laws with empathy. And through this process, be pushed to become better selves and better listeners um more respectful of understanding of where people are coming from without simply just dismissing something we don't agree with outright and in that way we become better selves yeah it's almost a summons summons also to complexity and an mm -hmm. idea that that recognizing the complexities of the world, of what it means to be human, about what it means to interact with other people, what it means to interact with the text, that act has to be an act of empathy. And that act of empathy can push one to become a better self. As we bring today's dialogue to a close, can you kindly tell us what you're working on as your current projects? Where has your time gone since 2016? Uh, can you tell us about the work you've done since? And is there anything in the pipeline coming up? Marjorie, do you want to? I think, um, I don't know if you agree with me, Jane, but I, I think what we're working on is not, I don't know. Well, you you answered that question because you have actually, there's, okay, let, let's just in relationship to pedagogy, right? Or, or writ large. Publicize your book, Marjorie. What? Publicize your book. Publicize your wonderful book. <laughs> or I will for you. Okay. Um, and I will talk about my pedagogy and my book project, but please. Okay. Um, so I've recently just finished a book um, on Masachat Yoma, Tractate Yoma. It was part of a larger project that Jane is also um uh, part of, in which um, we use feminist methodologies in order to explore various tractates of the Babylonian Talmud, the Babli. And in my case, it was Yoma, which has a lot to do with um, Kohanim or the priests and the temple. And um, and so it's an analysis of um, Masachat Yoma. 
where I'm going now in terms of pedagogy um, or where I'm going now in terms of my future projects. Um, so I do have a lot of, I, I do have a, another project that I'm working on right now, but um, uh, anyway, I, th I think I wanna let you, Jane, go ahead. I think um, I, it's just, it's too hard for me to do in like a minute, but. <laughs> um, so I am, as Marjorie said, I am completing a book manuscript on Tractate Sota of the Babylonian Talmud, which I'm very, very excited about. It's not a book of pedagogy. It's really feminist theory. And what does it mean? What is it? What happens when you analyze a tractate as a whole? What do you notice that you might not have noticed otherwise? And in this case, it's the thread of the Sota as she weaves her way through the whole tractate, even the parts that on the surface aren't about the Sota. Um, in the world of pedagogy, um, I, um, I have shifted my perspective from focusing on the teacher to focusing on the students. And again, with sponsored by the Mandel Center with a big thank you to John Levison, I have data from, I think it's 32 rabbinical students at four, five different rabbinical school seminaries talking about their experiences of learning Talmud. I've published one article from that data so far called coverage and comprehension, looking at how they talk about learning quickly versus learning slowly. And then I have two papers pending, which I will return to once this book manuscript is complete. Um, one is looking at the way in which these students talk about emotion, and in particular, emotion and gender in the study of Talmud. And then the other is looking at how students talk about failure in the study of Talmud and particularly examining moments of transition when they transition from one teacher to another, one learning context to another, and um, putting that in conversation with students talking about their experiences of learning the documentary hypothesis. So that's what I'm, that's what I'm working on in the world of pedagogy right now. And my interests in the world of pedagogy um, are related to, um, areas that are have been i think not thought of deeply enough for example of dude or slavery and i think that the word eved is an extremely complicated complicated word that whenever i reach that word it's always complicated to even understand whether they're talking about a non-jewish slave or servant or a jewish slave or servant um and it brings up really important issues that I think are on the table for today that we just haven't processed um, deeply enough. Um, and so I've taken it upon myself to think about it within the context of the way I teach, but also in terms of my own research. And I've been studying with another scholar, Mira Wasserman, who's at the Reconstructionist Rabbinical College, who's done a lot of work on race in Jewish studies. Um, and the two of us together have just been sort of plowing along through all of the sources, trying to determine what would constitute the kind of course we would want to teach. Um, what are the ethics that are driving um, this discussion that we're having? And then also um, just a, a deeper analysis um, of the sections or portions of rabbinics that mention Ebed or mention slave. So that's kind of like sort of my, has been my summer project. 
um, and I'm hoping to expand upon it as we enter the new semester. So that's great. Thank you. These sound like incredible and extraordinary pieces of scholarship, and I'm so grateful for all the sacrifice you're investing in this work for the benefit of all your readers and all humanity. Thank you so much. Thank you. That's a lot. <laughs> thank you. As we, we appreciate your time. Thank um, you. Thank you. As we end our dialogue today, I'm signing off as Ari Barbalat, your host today on the New Books in Jewish Studies podcast. Today, I've been in dialogue with Jane Kanarek and Marjorie Lehman regarding their edited volume, Learning to Read Talmud, What It Looks Like and How It Happens, published in Boston by Academic Studies Press 2016. Dr. Marjorie Lehman is Professor of Talmud and Rabbinics at the Jewish Theological Seminary. She is also the Chair of the Rabbinic Literatures and Cultures Department at the Jewish Theological Seminary. Rabbi Dr. Jane Kanarek is Associate Professor of Rabbinics and Associate Dean of the Rabbinical School at Hebrew College. Thank you so much. This was my deep, deep, deep honor. Thank you. Thank you.